Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So, here we are at the end of 1 Timothy. Um, However, we will not finish today. And uh, I keep telling you we're going to, and and we're going to be able to make it. Um, So, um, not sure what we're going to do next week yet, but uh, I'll talk to you. I'll I'll find out more a little bit this week. We've got some plans. But So, last week, we read the same passage. And we only looked at verse 11. And I'm hoping that many of you um, went home and had a conversation, which was your homework last week, to talk to somebody and to share something with someone that you were going to flee from. Something in your life doesn't need to be a, a horrible, sinful thing. It could be, but something maybe you just realize you need to flee from. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I would also encourage, have encouraged you to talk to somebody about what you need to pursue what, what is some one, at least one thing in your life that you need to be pursuing in, in your faith? If you haven't done that, I would encourage you to do that this week. It's not too late to do that. We should obviously always be asking ourselves those questions in our walk with Christ. Father, what is I need to flee? What is in my life that I need to turn away from? Show me my sin so that I may confess it and flee from it. Father, tell me what I need to be pursuing. Where in areas of my life do I need to to really move forward and and maybe push into something or or something, maybe just my Bible study time or whatever it may be. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's church attendance that you just need to be more regular. Maybe so you just need to pursue the body, the fellowship. Maybe it's a life group. I don't know, but whatever it is, that's really what, what Paul was encouraging Timothy, to flee from things that are not, right and good and honoring to the Lord. And specifically here, I believe he was talking about a lot of the things, the false teachings that was going on, the, the, the idea that you could um, participate in the Christian faith and following Christ for, for financial gain. Many of those false teachers were using it for financial gain. And so um, that's kind of where he ended and that, that, that's kind of what he shared with them. And now the rest of this, which is 12 through 16, we're going to look f- f- to today, Paul is encouraging Timothy as he kind of winds down his letter. He's, he's, he uses three words predominantly in here, that these three imperatives. He looks at the word fight. We're going to look at that. He says fight the good fight. He looks at the word to take hold. Once again, these are imperatives. An imperative is something that, that he's saying, Timothy, you must do this. You must fight. You must take hold. And you must keep the commandment. And we're going to look at all of those things this morning. So Paul's thrust here in his message to Timothy as he closes out his letter is, Timothy, you you have a lot of work to do. He's already really put the burden on Timothy in the first part of the letter. He said, you need to do these things. You need to protect the church. You need to raise up elders. You need to make sure that you're confronting false teaching. You need to do all of these things. And he's really put a burden on him. And now he's coming at the end and he's saying, Timothy, take heart. You can do these things. Flee this, pursue this, and remember these things. And so this this is what we're going to look at. And so we're going to look at probably five or six things that I think that we can draw from the text that he's encouraging Timothy to do or to remember. And I want to say that all of these things are the exact same things that Paul today, his word, can be using to encourage us. So let's look at the first verse here. 
let's, as we look at the big idea, let's look at the big idea. The big idea, spiritual encouragement is important. Spiritual encouragement is important. Now, specifically, Bible studies can be encouragement, uh, encouraging. Being together as the body of Christ clearly can be encouraging. Attending service is encouraging. I, I, I absolutely, um, you know, implore you to do those things, to be involved in those things. But specifically what I want to address today is, is personal spiritual encouragement. Who are you encouraging spiritually? Many of us in our spiritual walk, in our Christian walk, we, we kind of are independent. We kind of go our way. We, we even, we go to Bible studies. We listen. We take things in. But where do we, where does the rubber really meet the road in talking to someone one-on-one and building them up? We're quick to, to leverage admonishment on people sometimes. We're especially, you know, if it's something that we're widely aware of, we're, we're quick to acknowledge the sin in someone's life. But where do we really come alongside someone and encourage them? A few weeks ago, I was talking about this and, and maybe how to encourage someone. You can, even when you admonish, you can start with encouragement. I think, as I said before, I think I was using uh, David Daughtry here in the front. Now he's back running the thing back here. But I said, you know, when you come up to someone and you know that they're struggling with something, you want to encourage them and you can say, hey, David, I, I know you love the Lord, man. I see it in you. I see how you love your wife. I see how you, you serve the Lord and, and you know, you're, you're passionate about things. But I want to just share something I've noticed in your life. Okay, now I'm just encouraged him. I've reminded him of his love, right? And, and so encouragement can even be used even when we're kind of admonishing someone. The idea that we should encourage one another is so important. The, the struggles that Timothy is going to go through, the struggles that the church in the first century was going through, and I will tell you the church, the, the struggles that the church is going through now pastors and, and people of faith that are going through all around the world, we need to encourage one another. We're a small group of people in the world that is swimming upstream to culture. Um, there's obviously questions. People have questions about their salvation. We struggle with sin. Even, even though we're believers, we, we're tempted because of our flesh. We need encouragement. Our spouses need encouragement. Our friends, our children. As parents, we need encouragement. How much of your language is encouragement? The Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 4 says, you know, um, do not use any coarse conversation, but only what is good for the building up of others. Encouragement, right? So important. It's one of those things we put off and put on. We need to put on encouragement. So here, let's take a look at this. First verse, verse 12. Paul starts out, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Fight the good fight. Um, in my earlier years, um, there was actually a band that I listened to, um, which not a Christian band, but was, it was actually not horrible music either. But, uh, and they had a song that I loved in my, as a teenager, and it was called Fight the Good Fight. Uh, and it was based on this passage. Um, once again, they weren't a Christian band. And, and um, it is this idea that I think that what Paul is trying to tell Timothy is that, Timothy, this is not going to be simple. Your Christian walk is not going to be simple. It's going to be hard. We know, we've taught on this, there is suffering in the Christian life. There is. There is physical suffering, there's persecution if we're really living out our life the way we should be. There can be loneliness, there can be times of doubt. 
all of these things. And he's just saying, Timothy, this, this word fight is to contend for a prize, to contend for something, like to wrestle with something. We don't know exactly where this word comes from in the Greek, and, but it's, it's one of two things. It's probably a metaphor either for the Olympic Games, this idea of, of the Greek Games. It was the idea to contend for the prize, to win. We see Paul use that language a lot in his epistles. It could be also a military metaphor that we're contending, we're battling for something. Both of those would fit here in this, in this text. And Paul uses both of those throughout Scripture. So it's this idea that there's going to be struggle, there's going to be fight, but it's worth it, right? And so here we see Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. Why does he tell us to put on the armor of God? Why does he call us that we need to be soldiers? Because he knows that the walk... To follow Christ is not a simple one. In fact, I was just walking through the, the office uh, just a few moments ago before I got up here, and, and there's some cardboard armor of God sitting there. There's a cardboard helmet and a shield and a sword. I almost put it on and brought it out, but I didn't want to. It probably wouldn't have fit me. But I just thought about that, how important all of those things are. And, and we've taught on that. In fact, a year or so ago, Kyle Miller's preached on that, the armor of God. This idea, the helmet of salvation, I'll just name a few. The helmet of salvation, this idea that we come to, to Christ and we need to protect what we think. We need to protect how we, we think about Scripture, what we read, how we believe. That's what the helmet was for, to protect our mind. Right? We're, we're renewed by, we're, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. God says, take every thought captive. It's this idea that we need to even battle to protect our mind. And that's really what he's telling Timothy here. Don't believe false teaching, Timothy. Guard your mind from false teaching. There's the shield of faith and, and the belt buckle of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And so clearly he's saying that we need to go into battle. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6, 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And then the strength of his might. Now, once again, he's, I just want to remind you, he's ending, chapter, he's ending his letter to the if, uh, church at Ephesus here. And once again, he's encouraging them, right? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He's being very honest. He said, look, there's going to be battle. There's going to be resistance in your walk. You may say, well, I don't, I don't feel any resistance. I would challenge you then you're probably not living out your faith maybe as well as you should. And I'm not saying that we should be um, harsh or, or uh, overly bold with people that don't know Christ. We should be loving and gentle. We talked about that last week. But we should definitely, people should know who we are. We'll talk about that here in a minute. So what's the first thing, I think it's kind of the point that he's trying to remind him here, is that remember it's a fight, fight worth fighting. I think that's what he's telling. Timothy, fight the good fight. This is good to do this. It is right to do this. And I will tell you this, he is not telling him to fight for his faith. He's saying because of your faith, be bold, stand firm, put on the armor, guard your mind. Because of what you have confessed, which he's going to talk about here, do these things. Fight this good fight, Timothy. Fight it. It is worth fighting. I think about that a lot. I mean, like, when I am struggling, when I need to be encouraged, I, I kind of remember, like, this, this is what the Lord has said. This will be difficult. This is not something that God has not told us. So take heart and fight the good fight. Second part of that verse, he says, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 
Once again, here's the second imperative. He's telling Timothy, take hold of this, right? The word really could be better maybe uh, translated, make it your own, Timothy. In other words, yes, you understand it, but own it. Make it your own. Understand that you are saved. Have a confidence in that salvation that Christ has provided. Paul really puts it really well in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, not that I have already obtained this. Here he's talking about the resurrection ultimately, but it has to do with this eternal life that we have. And he says, not that I've already obtained this or already am I already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. The mystery and the tension in our walk and our salvation is that, that God is is calling people into relationship with him. Scripture in John's Gospel, John chapter six says, we can't come to know him unless the Father first draws us. There's a a drawing, a, a thing that God is doing to call us to work in our heart, to cause us to be born again, to regenerate us. But there's this beautiful piece that then we have to acknowledge and we believe. What must we do to be saved? We must believe. So here what is Paul saying? He says, I am pushing in to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. There's these two things that are coming together. Christ is drawing us and we are moving towards him. It's, it's this beautiful thing in scripture. It's talked about all over the place. He goes on here in the text and he says, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now there is some debate here among scholars when it says, He's talking to Timothy. He says, Timothy, you've made a good confession. What is that? There's two lines of thought. One is that he's talking about his baptism. When he came to Christ and acknowledged and he stepped forward and he was baptized and he became part of the body of Christ, he made a good confession in front of many witnesses. We have been blessed here these past few weeks to baptize many people. We have three or four more people that we're working with and talking to and and getting ready to baptize them in the next few weeks. It's this public confession of our faith. We profess Christ. We profess that I believe and that I want to live for him. I want to die to my old self, right? I want to flee the old self and I want to pursue Christ. And so maybe, and I think, Most likely, that's what this text is referring to. Some historians or theologians would argue that maybe it's his his ordination. And what I mean by that, when he is really brought in by Paul and they've they've laid hands on Timothy and they've said, hey, you're going to do this. This this work here in Ephesus is going to be for you. And they've kind of ordained him for this position. Maybe they're saying that there was obviously witnesses there says, you've made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Maybe so. I think the important thing, though, is that Timothy, in either one of those things, is professing his faith publicly. I know some of you um, are believers, and for one reason or another, you've not been baptized. And I don't want to lump you all into one group. Um, I will say it's a bit of a mystery to me and I've said this, I'm just very, very candid about this, I'm, this is not judgment, is that if you love the Lord, and I think it's pretty clear that, I believe it's absolutely clear that God wants us to have a public profession in baptism. It's, right? And you say, well, I, I'm afraid to be in front of people. 
We make it as simple as you could make it. We do your testimony with only one or two people in the room. All you have to do is say yes. We're not asking you to speak. We're not asking you to give a, you know, a lecture, a, a live testimony in front of hundreds of people. And yet, there are many people that have not stepped forward in baptism. I just would ask you to pray about that. And why is that? You need to really wrestle with why that is. It's important. I think it is extremely important and honoring and glorifying to God. And, and if we're going to live a life and we're going to fight the good fight, if we can't make a profession of faith in front of people who love us and have grace for us, and we don't even have to say anything, how much, how are we going to ever engage the culture and people that are far from God and be able to live out that life? And I believe that there is favor when we step forward and confess Christ. I believe God uses that. It doesn't save us. It's not a salvation act. It's an act of obedience, one that I think we should want to do. In fact, Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 32, Jesus says it this way. He says, so everyone who acknowledges me before men. Now, that could be in baptism. It's not saying that. It's very, obviously, that is what we do. He says, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. You can read some more text there. It says, if you don't acknowledge me, I will be ashamed of you. What is it that you're waiting for? What is it that you feel is missing? And if you have questions about that, please come talk to me or Pastor Brian. We'll help you walk through it. I know there are some people, I mean, and I, I say this with all seriousness and respect, some people don't want you to see them with their hair wet. No, I, you know, I have a, a good family member, that extended family member that feels that way. Just, just really, it's just a problem, right? I, I think it's the shape of the person's head. They're afraid that when it's wet, it won't look right, right? But we have to push through those fears. Scripture says that God does not give us the spirit of fear, right? We need to step forward. We need to realize the importance of what this is and, and our, our act of worship that that is. So what's the second thing we see? First one is obviously it's a, it's a fight worth fighting. But here, I think Paul is reminding in Timothy to trust in the promise of eternal life. To trust in the promise of eternal life. He says he's made this good profession, right? To take hold of eternal life, which you were called, about which you made this good profession in the presence of many witnesses. He's saying, Timothy, you can trust and take hold of, of what Christ has done. He has he has made it possible. He has died for us and opened up the curtain so that we can come to God. He has given us a righteousness not of our own. You can trust it. He has given us eternal life and a promise of a physical resurrection. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, you, you who share in a heavenly calling, this is this calling that God places on his people. Consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession, right? He's saying this is who we profess. This is, this is we, we're not professing hope in any other thing and, and animal sacrifices and, and other, other priests in the temple. We, we have one person that we confess, one person that is our high priest that we put our trust and our hope in. And so we should make that profession and confession. Verse 13, 1 Timothy 6. 
says, I charge you in the presence. Now he's, he's charging, so he's been encouraging him, but now there's, a, there's even a, a more direct encouragement and charge to Timothy. It says, I charge you in the presence of God. Boy, that is, that's a heavy statement. He's basically saying, Timothy, in the presence of God, you've professed this. You've made this good profession. I'm reminding you, Timothy, that God is here and cares about what you're going to do and what you, how you live your life. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. He's just honoring God here with that. And of Christ Jesus, who is the testimony, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Let's look at the first part of that verse. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. He's saying, Timothy, there's a divine witness here. It's not just people, it's not just your friends, your family. It's just not me, Timothy. God is present. He is witnessing your confession. He has witnessed your confession. He is the one really directing and and ordaining you for this work. And so because of that, I'm charging you, I'm reminding you, Timothy. What does he though go on to remind him? Who gives life to all things. He's, he's reminding Timothy that God is the creator. That, that Timothy, this is just not, this is not just some, some pagan God. This is not some idol. This is, this is the one who gave life, who created all things. And when, why is that important? Why is he doing that? I don't, I don't know exactly, obviously, but, but I have said many times from the pulpit that one of the things I think is foundationally um, very concerning in the Christian faith is, is that we need to make sure that we understand that God is the creator and, and all that goes with that and that we are his creation. And I've said many times, if you get that theological truth, and I know it seems so simple, but yet we live in a way that we don't acknowledge that. We want to be the thing. We want to, be, we want to worship ourselves. We've talked about this, like I said, many times. Where do we see this primarily? It's in Romans chapter one. I'm just gonna read one verse, verse 25. Paul says, and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Even in the church, we struggle with self-worship. We struggle to deny that God is the creator. We see that the enemy has sowed that, and we see that in evolution. The whole process of tearing down that God is a creator. Because when we understand that God is a creator, that is one of the greatest miracles, maybe the greatest miracle of all of Scripture, is that God created everything out of nothing. And when we, that should humble us. That should, we should meditate on that. Many times in my prayer, when I, when I pray, um, and not just for extended periods of times, even short prayers, many times I will remind myself, Father, you have created all things. You've created me. I am your creation. You, you have purchased me. I, you've adopted me. You are worthy of my praise. I mean, I, I owe my life to you. I owe you my existence. And yet I'm a sinner, and you still love me and died for me and yet I'm your creation. That should just cause us to be undone, as Isaiah would say when he was in the presence of the Lord. He said, oh, I'm a sinful man, right? But yet many of us, 
live in such a way that we move away from that truth and we don't meditate on it. I think what he's trying to tell Timothy is, Timothy, remember that this God who is in presence, who is, who is over you and that I'm charging you, is the creator of all things. He is the one who's created you, Timothy. And so what do we see is, I think the third thing is that he reminds and encourages Timothy to acknowledge God as creator. Just acknowledge him as creator. I think that's such an important thing in your life. As you teach your children, one of the things in, um, oh, I think it's, uh, I forget the name of it, it's a catechism book. Uh, basically, catechisms just mean all the teachings of spiritual truths that we take our children through sometimes. And one of the questions, one of the first things in there this, this author talks about is when they were working with their child, they said they wanted to teach their children. I think this is so good. I'm, I've been working with my granddaughter on this in the past, but who, 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 uh, who created all things? God. Who created you? God. Why did he create you and all things? For his glory. That's a simple thing you can teach to your child at three years old, two years old. Just ask him, who created all things? God. Help them understand that. The trees, the, the people, your brother, right? He's, God has created all things. And he's created you. It's personal. Not only did God create everything else, but he created you. And why did he do all these things? Because for his glory, right? Simple truths that we can begin to, to sow into the hearts of our children. It goes on here in the text in verse 13. It says, So I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ who is his testimony, who, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So here he's saying that Jesus made a good confession. He also made this confession of some form, right? Now obviously he is not professing um, salvation because he is God in the flesh, right? But I do think that, that this reference is to encourage Timothy and, and remind him of a few things. And so I, I think that when Jesus stands before Pontius Pilate, I think there's three primary things that we can pull away from that. His confession, what, what does he state? Maybe it's not even that he states it verbally, but he states it in the way he answers or doesn't answer Pilate. And so let's take a look at these three. Because I think what he's saying is, is that Timothy... If Christ can do these things, I want to encourage you to make this same type of confession in your life. That these are three parts of this confession. The first one is going to be a confession of identity. A confession of identity. What do I mean by that? Well, if we look at John chapter 18, verse 37. Now, Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken um, by the Jews. He's been in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, uh, the Pharisees. They've condemned him. They've taken him that, that morning, and, and now he's before Pilate. Obviously, the Jews want him to, be, to crucify him, and they take him to Pilate, and, and there's a conversation. We're not going to read it all, but here in John chapter 18, verse 37, it says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Because that's what the Jews were saying that Jesus was professing. Notice what Jesus says. You say that I am king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He does not deny that statement. In fact, he says, yep, you say I'm king. Like, even now, Pilate, you have acknowledged me as king, and I have come for this very purpose. This is why I was born, right? So Jesus is confessing his identity. He has a confession of his identity. He is not ashamed of who he is. 
I think what he's saying, Timothy, don't be ashamed of who you are. You're a believer, Timothy. You're a man of God. What, what did we see a couple weeks ago? Oh, man of God. He calls him that. He, had, he brings identity. There's, a, there's some great books out there, all the things that we are in Christ, right? Uh, we're saints. We're redeemed. We're witnesses. Uh, you know, just a list. And it's an encouraging thing. Sometimes we use it in counseling to remind believers of who you are. One of the, one of the things I love when I'm talking to my wife or when we're having some conversations, I said, remember, you're a daughter of the king, Right? We want to make sure that we're encouraging one another. And I think here, it's, it's, Paul is just reminding Timothy of this. And that's why he's using Jesus' confession here before Pilate. So don't be afraid of, to say who you are. Don't be afraid to tell people you're a Christian. In your workplace. And you say, well, I, I don't want... Look, this is... You're a witness. Remember... What does Jesus say when, when the salt is not salty anymore? It is not good even for the dung pile. Are you salty? Are you, are you flavorful? Do people know who you are? I remember years ago, and, and believe me, you do not have to, to, to you know, be preaching all the time at you know, work or whatever or to your neighbor. You need to speak. They need to hear those things. Absolutely. How will they know unless someone tells them? Speak. But it's also in how you live. I remember being at work many times, and, you know, I was a project manager, and I had several other friends, and many of them would go into an office, and they would tell, you know, kind of an inappropriate joke, and I would never get invited. Didn't offend me at all. In fact, I was thankful. I mean, I would have said no, but, I mean, they respected me, and they, they liked me, but they knew who I was because I was clear about who I was. I had people in my, that worked for me. They knew. I made it clear with my, my, my manager or my supervisor that was a woman. I said, we will never be able to go to lunch together. I said, that's no offense to you, but it's just a practice that I have as a Christian. I, I will never be, try never to be alone with a woman, especially out to lunch or do something like that. And now she was a Christian, and she said, yeah, I have the same policy. So it worked out great. But, but other people are hearing that in the office. And when something was going on in their life, what do you think happened? They knocked on my door and they wanted to come in and they wanted to know if they could talk to me and pray with me, if I would pray for them. But see, none of that happens if you don't confess your identity in Christ. No one even knows that they can come to you. They're looking for hope. They're looking for someone that has confidence in what's going on in the world and not afraid and not fearful. And if you don't let them know whose you are, and who you belong to, and what your hope is in, why would they ever come to you? So you've got to confess your identity. He wants Timothy to not to be ashamed. Second thing in this confession of Jesus is he has a confession of God's ultimate authority. Confession of God's ultimate authority. So what do we see here is Jesus is before Pilate, and, and Pilate says, you know, like, don't you know that I have the power to, to kill you? I love Jesus' answer here. John chapter 19, verse 10 and 11. Pilate says, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? At this point, Pilate thinks he is all-powerful. And in some worldly sense, he was. He ruled. 
He ruled Israel, that area, Judea there. He, he ruled it. He was over it. He was the procurator. He was in charge of all things. The, the Romans, most historians believe, killed probably 30,000 people by crucifixion. And they put them up along the roads so that they ruled in fear, so that you did not rebel. And under that light, what do, what do we see Jesus say? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. I think that just kind of sealed his crucifixion right there, right? The guy that says, I have authority, honor my authority. Like, at least honor me. Realize who I am, Jesus. And he says, yeah, you don't have any authority unless it's been given to you. Yes, I acknowledge that you have authority only because my Father has given it to you from above. Do you acknowledge God's ultimate authority in your life? He gets to tell you how he wants you to live if you profess Christ. You don't get to make that decision. He gets to make that decision. He gets to say that you should not have sex outside of marriage because he's the creator, because he has ultimate authority. He gets to say there's two genders. He gets to say that marriage is between a man and a woman. He gets to say that thou shall not steal. That's not up to us. Now, you can decide not to follow him and not to be a believer and live the way you want. But if you make the good confession and trust Christ with your life and acknowledge that he has saved you, he's come in and made you a new creation, then he is the ultimate authority in your life. You have to then decide to submit to that. And we have talked about submission. It is a beautiful thing. We see Christ in the Gospel of John submitting to his Father all the time. That's his one thing. He just says, I want to do whatever the Father wants me to do. Is that, is that your, your desire? To do whatever the Lord leads you to do. To honor him, to glorify him in how you live your life. To seek out his will in Scripture for your life, how you should live, and then desire to do it. And fight the good fight to achieve it while you're resting in the promises of eternal life. Third confession that Jesus makes. It's a confession of complete trust. So not only does he confess his identity and he confesses that God the Father has ultimate authority, but he has a confession of complete trust in what he has just said about who God is and who his Father is. We see this in Matthew 27, verse 13 and 14. It's another piece of the gospel here in Matthew that's talking about this relationship, this conversation between him and Pilate. It says, then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they, they testify against you? The Jews and, and the people are, are hurling insults at Jesus and they're telling Pilate to kill him. And, he, and Pilate says, but you... But he gave no answer, Jesus says, not even to a single charge. So he doesn't say anything. We see he's silent, right? We, we see this in Isaiah 53. He was silent before, you know, as a, as a lamb before the, to be ready to be slaughtered. That's that reference there. He's silent. He's trusting God the Father. He knows that Whatever comes is, is God's sovereign work. It's, it's, it's what he's supposed to be doing. He's trusting in his father. Even though it's going to be difficult, he's going to lead to a brutal beating and his death, a painful death. 
But what's kind of amazing is this next line, so that the governor was greatly amazed. That's one of those things that we just kind of read over. Pilate was greatly amazed. Why? Jesus didn't even try and get out of it. We would be begging for our life. (laughs) We would be coming, we would say anything to get out of that. I mean, he could have said, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not saying he has to lie. I'm not saying he has, he he doesn't have to sin. He could just say, I haven't done anything wrong. I don't deserve to die. That all been true. But he's, he's just yielding to his father. He's saying, no, this is why I've come. He's so sure about his purpose and what God is doing through him. He's just yielding. And that, that submission, that trust overwhelms Pilate. I would just ask you, do people see that in you? Do they see a trust of God in your life as a professed, confessed believer? Do they see, you just trust. I mean, there's so many places this, this takes place, but I think one of the, the pinnacle places that this really is the, comes to bear in our life is when we, we are sick, especially those who are really struggling with life illnesses or um, just disease or certain things. Are we afraid all the time? Are we fearful? Are we, are we just trusting? Doesn't mean we don't try. Doesn't mean we go see the doctor. Doesn't mean we don't have surgery. Doesn't mean we, we don't take chemo. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, but is there a peace in us that says, yes, I'm, I, I'd like to stay around a while for my family, for my kids, to be, share the gospel with people, to have fellowship in this life, but I just rest in God the Father. If my day is here, my day is here. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight the good fight until that moment. I'm going to keep waging war. I'm going to keep loving the Father. But I think the best testimony of our Christian faith is how we face death. And that's exactly what he's trying to tell Timothy here. Timothy, you've got to be ready to face death just like Jesus was. You've got to rest. You, gotta, you just got to have a confidence in him. God is ultimately authority. You know who you are. You know who you belong to. You've made it your own, and now you just need to rest in Christ. Verse 14, 1 Timothy 6. Now he says, he goes on here, make the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is another tough one. It says, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. What is that? I don't know. To keep the commandment. Could be a lot of things. Could be to keep the faith. I mean, to keep the commandment that I've just shared with you. To do these things. To live this way. To honor God. Not to, not to move away from the truth. It's this idea of this confession that he makes at baptism that we make at baptism and now keep that right don't don't waver from that hold fast to that could be could be that he's wrapping all of the the law up all of the things you know to love the god with all your heart soul and mind and to love your neighbors yourself the great commandment maybe that is part of it maybe it's it's all wrapped up in that timothy keep this keep this truth who you are. Don't waver from who you are or what God has said. Keep the commandment, what God has given you and trusted you with. Could be. 
I think it is part of those things. Obviously, God left it to be wide open a little bit more. But this idea that it was a commandment, it was something that was very important, something that, that he really wanted to make sure that Timothy held on to, right? And to keep it free from reproach until Christ returns. So your whole life, Timothy, now that you've made this great confession, now that you've trusted in God, now that you've acknowledged him, now that you've placed your trust in him, live in a way that honors him. Keep the commandment, whatever that is. Keep it. Paul said this way in Philippians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, right? In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, right? To keep the commandment, to hold fast there. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Paul's saying, look, when that day comes, I want to know that, that God used me for his purposes and for his glory to call people to himself. And Timothy, I'm running, and I, I'm running hard, and I am fighting the good fight. And at the end of that race, I want to see you there. I don't want to think I labored in vain, Timothy. And then he says, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. We don't know. We know in the early first century there that many thought that Jesus was going to come back in their lifetime. Some would argue here that maybe it's starting to appear that, that Jesus is maybe not going to come back in their lifetime. That's why he's reminding Timothy that until the appearing of our Lord, like we don't know when that's going to be, Timothy. So you just keep pressing on. During VBS... A few nights ago, we were sitting up at the kitchen area in the shelter and had a big conversation about end times and eschatology and, and um, you know, what's going to happen. And the one thing, I think we all had some different thoughts, and, you know, and, but the one thing we all agreed on, we need to be ready, <laughs> right? He is coming, and we need to be ready. I don't know if it's today, this afternoon. I don't know if it's 100 years from now. I don't know if there's going to be a rapture, not going to be a rapture, right? I don't know if we're going to have to go through the tribulation. If you study all that, you know, come educate me a little bit more. I've studied it a lot. There's all sorts of things we can talk about. The number one thing is that God wins. He's worthy. He is the king of kings. We're going to see that in a minute. And we need to be ready. And I want to ask you if you're ready. Have you done these things? Have you made the good profession? Have you trusted in Christ? Have you acknowledged him as Lord and Savior? All those are, are pieces to say, yes, I am. I have assurance because I've done. Have you made it your own? Have you seized eternal life in Christ? Have you acknowledged it? Are you living that way? 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8, Paul says it this way. He says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I will just tell you that part of my prayer for you and for me is that I thank God that he is sustaining us. He is holding us. There will be situations in your life that you will, in your flesh, you would not be able to stand. And I believe that Christ helps us stand. There are things that you think, I can't do that. And you're right, you can't do that. But Christ in you, that is, you can do that. Christ in you can do that. Those conversations that you wish you could have, the love that you need to have, 
Pray through that, but trust that God is with you. He who will sustain you till the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're guiltless because of what Christ has done, because we have a righteousness not of our own, not because we will be perfect. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's not saying you will live a sinless life. No, he's saying he will sustain you in his son and you will be guiltless in Christ. So what's the thing here? He's trying to remind Timothy and encourage him is stay faithful until Christ returns or takes us home. Or takes us home. I don't know when that's going to be. Just stay faithful. That's why we, that's why God, one of the reasons, one of the beautiful things about the church is we gather together to encourage one another as we see the day quickly approaching. That's what the scripture says. We gather, encourage one another to hold fast, to turn away from sin, to pursue Christ, to do all those things. And that's why the church is so important. People say, well, I don't need to go to church to be a believer. Okay, yes, I, I have some issues with that. But who wouldn't want to be encouraged for the battle at hand? Who wants to be alone in all of that? We need to stay faithful until Christ returns or takes us home. Second Timothy, Paul keeps with this thought here with Timothy. Second Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul's just reminding Timothy, Timothy, I've done this. I have kept the faith. I've, I continue to fight the good fight. I've finished. Paul sees the end of his life coming here in Timothy's second letter, Paul's second letter to Timothy. We think it's very close before Paul goes home to be with the Lord. He says, I have kept the faith. He's encouraging Timothy and saying, Timothy, as I have done, follow me as I have followed Christ. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, second part of verse one, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us. Endurance. It's going to be hard. Endure. To endure, we need support. We need encouragement. Are you encouraging people to run with endurance? I mean, we go to sporting games and with our children, and, and you know, they struggle, and, and they strike out, and, and if you're hopefully a good parent, you're helping them, but you're encouraging them. You don't, they don't come off the field, and you don't berate your 10-year-old. <laughs> you know what I mean? You encourage them. Why? Because you know they need that. How much more do we need that and understanding that we're believers and that our eternal destiny has been set, but I'm struggling. What's the, what's the passage say? He's, the man says, um, I have faith, but help me in my unbelief. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Right? Even Christians, we struggle. We need to encourage one another. Are you doing that? All right, we've got to finish up these last two verses. Verse 15 and 16. He says, so until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he, God ultimately here, will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We don't know, but it's a good possibility that, that this or something very like this, that Paul was bringing this from, from his days as a Pharisee, maybe a, some type of hymn or some type of um, reading that was taken in the synagogue. And he, what is he doing here? He's reminding Timothy of the incredible majesty of God. He says, we'll display at the proper time. No one knows the day or the hour when Christ is going to return. God the Father alone. When he decides, he will make that happen. 
which God will display at the proper time. And then he says, basically, who is blessed and the only sovereign. What does sovereign mean? In control of all things. Everything that happens in the entire universe, every created thing is functioning just as God desires it to do. I know that's a hard thing to get our mind around. R.C. Sproul once said, if there's any molecule in the entire universe that's not doing exactly what God wants it to do, then God is not sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign over everything. Just let that set in for a second. Everything, everything that you don't see, every galaxy that we don't understand, every star, every planet, every cell in your body, everything God is sovereign over. Nothing is gonna happen that he does not permit to happen or does not want to happen. Doesn't mean he creates evil, he doesn't. That's a whole other discussion, but he is control over it all. And he's reminding Timothy of this. In this fight that you're going to fight, Timothy, you can rest in Christ. You can rest in the sovereignty of God. And then he puts a little bit more meat on that. He says, the king of kings. He says, Timothy, there is no king out there that God is not king over. Lord of lords, there is no lord out there that God is not lord over. He has alone immortality. Now, does, now we have immortality in Christ. We have eternal life. Paul is reminding Timothy is that God is the only one that has immortality in himself. He has existed forever and will exist forever. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is no end to him. He alone has immortality. So he's, he's just overwhelming. Who dwells in approachable light who no one has ever seen or can see. We can reflect back on Moses when he was the burning bush, and, and God says, you can't see me and live. So he puts him in the cleft, and he, he moves by him metaphorically and shields him so he can only see the backside of God, whatever that kind of metaphorically is meaning there. He dwells in unapproachable light to whom no, no one has ever seen or can see. And then he says to him, be eternal dominion. This idea of immortality. In John chapter 5, verse 26, I think this is very interesting. He says, For God, or for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Now think about that for a second. What he's saying is, is Jesus has immortality as well, forever. So he's saying Jesus is God. He's saying only God alone has immortality. And John chapter 5 verse 26 says, and Jesus has that same immortality. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right side and has made him known. He says, once again, Jesus is God in the flesh. Existed forever and will exist forever. So what's the last thing we see here that Paul is trying to encourage Timothy with? He's encouraging Timothy to always be overwhelmed by who God is. And just always be overwhelmed by who God is. Timothy, he's, he's glorious. He is he's the creator of all things. He's glorious. He's Lord of lords. He's sovereign over all things. He lives forever. He's immortal. He's deserving of all our praise and 
honor? How often do you let God overwhelm you? How often do you meditate on who he is and be overwhelmed by that? Once again, I'd go back to Isaiah. It's just a great passage. Jesus says, I'm undone. He's in the throne there in chapter 6 of Isaiah. He says, you know, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm undone. I can do that. I can just go outside and sit and listen to the birds and look at the trees, and I can begin to meditate on, on all of those things. And why would God love me? Why would God save me? Right? I'm, un, I'm undone. But you've got to meditate on those things. The world is so desperately trying to say, don't look there. Don't think about those things. That's why you have to control your thoughts. So I've got a question for you. Who are you encouraging? Who are you encouraging? Who are you coming along like Paul? And we don't write letters that much anymore. But who are you encouraging throughout your day, throughout your week? Do you write an encouraging letter, an email, a text? Do you have a conversation over lunch or at the dinner table? Do you encourage your spouse? Do you encourage your children? And I'm not just saying encourage them in anything. I'm talking about in their spiritual life. Do you encourage them to pursue Christ? Do you encourage them to flee something? Not beat them up, but encourage them to flee. It's, it's important. If we want to build each other up in Christ, we've got to encourage one another. And there is so much that we can do to encourage one each other. God has given us so much that we can tap into to encourage the body of Christ. I think really that's what VBS is about. We're encouraging the kids. We're loving them. We're reminding them who he is. He is leader of the kingdom of the truth, right? He is sovereign over it all. We just keep encouraging them to remind them who he is so that he can be forefront in their mind, in their heart. So what's your next step? We need to be intentional about encouraging people in their Christian faith. We gotta be intentional. Like, preaching is intentional. Sharing the gospel is intentional. How will they know unless someone tells them? Right? How will they know? You gotta be intentional. You gotta be intentional how you live. You gotta be intentional what you flee from, what you, what you pursue. You gotta be intentional. You gotta be intentional about making sure that people know your identity in Christ. Students, if you're dating, you gotta let people know, I'm a Christian. Jesus is most important to me. I will always love Jesus more than I will love you. I tell my wife that all the time. You, you make sure you always love Jesus more than you love me. Right? He is your pinnacle of your worship, not me. I am free to be your husband then. You need to be intentional about engaging people in their Christian faith. I'm going to leave you with this closing letter, closing statement from Paul in his letter, um, or not some by Paul, but uh, Jude. Jude, verse 24 and 25. There's only one chapter, so. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Before all time and now forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. 
Lord, I pray that as we work through this text, it was an encouragement to the body here. It was an encouragement to me, Father. Father, help us to encourage one another as Paul is writing here to Timothy and to encourage him. We know that the days ahead in our lives are always difficult. It's been that way since the beginning of time, and that will not change until you come. Give us the strength to continue to wage the good fight. Help us to be reminded that in Christ we have eternal life, and help us to take ownership of that that gift, to live in a way that we acknowledge that. Father, help us to remember that you are the creator and we're the creation and yield to that. Father, help us to remember the good confession that Jesus made and not to be ashamed of who we are, to be reminded that that you are ultimate in authority and that because of that we can rest and trust in you no matter what. Father, finally, help us to be intentional about sharing that encouragement with others around us. And Father, may how we live in that encouragement that we share with others and that we exhibit in our own life draw people to yourself. May they see you glorious as we honor you and praise you and live for you and worship you and acknowledge you. May all of that be used to draw people to you. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.